we conclude this uh, series this morning. We look starting off that we were created to connect, um, that God made us as spiritual beings to connect with Him and social beings to connect with others. We looked last week about how Jesus called His uh, followers to connect with one another. He used uh, those 12 men uh, who turned out to be uh, definitely movers and shakers for the kingdom of God. And he mentored them and poured into them. And we saw how they were very different um, and had different strengths and weaknesses. But yet uh, they, they proved effective um, for the kingdom, barring one. And I want, to take, I want you to join me this morning in Acts chapter 2. The decision to connect. We were created to connect. We've been called to connect. We've seen it through the centuries. Um, using Jesus' model as a way to grow and to develop as a, as a disciple, as a follower of Christ. And this morning we weigh the options. We say, in light of what we've heard and being created to connect and having this admonition in the Scriptures to be called to connect, what is our decision? And, and I want to look at this biblical example, the early church, and, and how they started and what happened um, with them immediately, the moment that the church grew. And I want you to look with me in verse 40, please, of chapter 2 of the book of Acts. It's a familiar scripture for many of you. Acts chapter 2, verse 40. And with many other words, he, being Peter, testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000 souls. That's a lot, guys. That's a, that's a pretty good sermon, huh? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, or better yet, and everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I hope, uh, for those of you that were really paying attention to those words, I hope that you know we get this mindset or this attitude that we do church on Sunday. Um, and, and we do, that's true. We do it weekly. You can find us here. We do this weekly on the Lord's Day to celebrate and commemorate uh, His resurrection or Him overcoming from uh, de the de death and, and from the grave. But what is interesting about this early church and, and why there's, there's such a great thing to study is that this early church did church all through the week. They, they were active in their relationship with Christ. They were actively involved with other believers and they saw people come to Christ daily, the Bible says. Now think about the interesting logistics that this had to have proven um, in, in, in this early church. Because if you think about it, this church grew from just over a hundred in an upper room praying 
And Pentecost had come and the, the Holy Spirit had, had, had indwelled them and empowered them. And Peter goes out and preaches this sermon. And the church grows from 120 to over 3,000 overnight. From 120 to 3,000 overnight. If you think about it, First Baptist Church went from being a rural church plant to a mega church overnight. From 120 believers all the way up to 3,000, over 3,000 at the result, at the conclusion, at the invitation, if you will, um, from Peter's first sermon. And we often want to look Especially as pastors, we, we strive, or many of us strive, to get back to a biblical model of church. We strive to get back to look and examine and study what was the church that Jesus designed? What did that newborn, fledgling church do? And we strive to, in investigating that and in studying that, we strive to, uh, to, to participate in the same activities that the early church was. We compare our churches today to that early fellowship. But let me tell you something interesting. Even though we're going to study what happened, even though we're going to study what happened in this early church, and we're going to look closely at the things that these new believers did, always centered around the fact that they're connecting. But even though we're going to study what they did, I want us to start looking at something about why they did it. We're going to spend plenty of time talking about them praying, talking about them studying, talking about them fellowshipping with one another, talking about them meeting others' needs, and those are what they did. But I want us to just pause for a second and consider this question. Why did they do what they did? Why did they come into a small group and have multiple small groups? Why did they continue in the apostles' teaching? Why did they eat their food with gladness and simplicity of heart? Why did they go from house to house and praise Jesus and pray? Why did they do these things they did? Better yet, why did they connect? Here's the interesting thing. Peter does not give them a command to connect. And if you're taking notes, here's the first thing. It was a value-based decision. This, the, we're going to study what they did, but why they did. Obviously, it was a value-based decision. Now, you may be thinking, okay, Pastor, you, that, that's, that's stating the obvious. You may say, well, everything we do is a value-based decision. And it's true. We can base what our values are or if they're really values by how our life is lived because if something is really valuable to us, what we're going to do is commit to that value. We're going to do those things that we see that have true worth for us. It doesn't matter what arena of life, you can plug that model into anything. If we believe it has value, more than likely we're going to line our, align our lives up with that. If you notice, each one of those videos that we've played of the three weeks, there was one common theme throughout all of those uh, videos that you saw. Through all of those five testimonies that you heard, there was one thing that remained true. I asked each one of those teachers to do this. I said, do this please. Share with your audience. Make your audience aware of what you see to be a value in that class. 
Make it, help your audience, help the people that are listening to your testimony, talking about Sunday school. Why in the world would they get up an hour earlier? Why in the world would they try to get the kids rushed around for an hour earlier? And I asked them to share what was valuable. Because I believe we make our decisions based off of what we deem to be a true value in our life. And it's not any different here. If you think about it, what did, what did, the, what did Peter tell them to do? Peter exhorted them. Peter is recorded as giving them really two exhortations. Here they are. The first exhortation is this. It's not up on the screen. You might need to jot this down. The first exhortation he gave them was a gospel plea. He shared with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. He shared with them who Jesus was. He shared with them his death. He shared with them the entire scope of the gospel. And he invited them to receive Jesus personally as their Lord and Savior. So that's really the first thing that, Je that Peter exhorted them to do. But the second thing Peter exhorted them to do. Look at verse number 40. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So did Peter ever come up to them on his little pulpit and tell all of the masses that once you become saved, once you receive this gospel of Jesus Christ, once you trust Him as your faith, as your Savior through faith, then you all need to get together and form all of these little groups, and then you need to get in it together and build each other up and grow with each other and learn with each other and minister with one another. No. Two things He exhorted them to do. One was to receive the gospel, and the second one was to be saved from this perverse generation. And this is what happened. This is why I say it was a value-based decision. Those believers, once they hear the gospel, they realize that they're a sinner standing in need of salvation. They trust Jesus, and at that moment, at that moment, Jesus Christ became the most important person in their life. At that moment when they hear that there is sinners standing in need of salvation and Jesus is God and He came to the earth to die for their sins, He did die for their sins, He rose again the third day and someday soon He's coming back to get His church when they heard that. And they received Him. It was not just receiving Him as a Savior of their souls, but they received Him as the Lord of their life in that very moment. That very moment. Jesus became the most valuable possession in their life. How do I know that? All of the rest of the verses describe a life that values Jesus above all other things. There was no commandment from Peter you need to get together and form these groups to encourage and edify and educate. You need to get together and form these groups to build fellowship and a common bond among you so you can serve and, and grow and be an incubator in the midst of a dangerous, perverse world. No, Peter didn't say that they needed to form small groups. What they recognized was that if Jesus is the most important person in my life, if I value my relationship with Jesus above everything else, then it's going to be demonstrated in my actions. 
It was a common, it was a common, really a common response for people. So all of these 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. They're baptized. They have publicly identified with Christ in death and resurrection. They have, have demonstrated that publicly. And then they start looking around because Jesus is so important to me. I want to be around those people who share that same desire. I want to associate with people. I want to get to know people. I, I want to be involved with other people's lives whom Jesus is the most valuable thing, the most valuable person, the most valuable relationship in their life. It was a value-based decision. In our lives, our decisions are value-based. And I believe that... Well, why, why do we read the Bible? Ultimately, if you break it down, really at the heart of it would have to be that decision that I believe the Bible has value for my life. I believe the Bible has great worth. And if I really believe that, my life and my decision and my relationship to the Bible is going to demonstrate that. I'm going to be involved with it. I'm going to be reading it. I'm going to be memorizing it. I'm going to be studying it because, in my opinion, it holds great value for my life. And these disciples, in verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Their decision was not just a value-based decision in that if Christ is the most valuable relationship, is the most valuable person in my life right now, then I want to be around other people. I want to associate with other people. I want a fellowship with other people who share that same belief. But if you think about it, it also falls in line with Peter's second exhortation. Not just to know Jesus, not just to receive Him as a Savior and Lord in an ongoing daily faith relationship, but Peter's second exhortation was this. Be saved from a perverse generation. Or, better yet, be saved from this crooked world. I believe that that value that they placed on meeting together was not just for the purpose of knowing Christ better, but to be aware of the danger and the sin in the world and that those groups also provided security and a spiritual incubator, if you will, for those new baby Christians that were growing. And I believe the first thing when we're considering getting involved with our personal study, when we're considering our personal relationship with Christ, if we're considering getting involved with a small group here on campus or maybe at someone's home, when we're considering it, remember this, it's going to be a value-based decision. And I believe that when we value Christ above all other things, we're going to value the things that He values. If we love God, I believe we're going to love the people of God. If we love God, I believe we're going to love the Word of God. I believe if we truly love God, we're going to love the house of God. We're going to love the will of God. It's impossible for us to separate our love for Him and our love for the things of Him. Notice the second thing. It wasn't just a value-based decision, but it was an individual commitment. Again, Peter is not telling them, you have to form small groups, you, you have to do this. This was a value-based decision, but it was also an individual decision notice what they did look with me at verse 42 for a moment it says they continued steadfastly continued means they actually persevered 
They, they were just continual in their study, in their listening, in their understanding and growing in a knowledge of the Word. And if you think about this, they gave their heart and their ears. They gave their heart and their ears. This was their individual decision. If I believe that Christ is the most valuable personality in my life, if I believe that His Word is essential for me to grow and to develop and to be the man or woman that He wants me to be, then it is important, it is imperative for me to follow down to that logical conclusion to say that I must give it the attention that it deserves if it is really that valuable in my life. They gave their ears and their hearts to attention. It wasn't just them going and sitting down listening. The fact that they steadfastly continued, that they persevered, means this was not just something that they were doing with their ears, but their heart was in it. They legitimately, genuinely wanted to know and to grow more. The second thing that they did, they shared their lives. This wasn't just something where they came in and someone took their name and they heard a lesson and left. This was something that fellowship is spoken of often through 40 and 47. In fact, not just fellowship, koinonia, but even beyond that, what is spoken of most in regards to fellowship is breaking of bread. Or let me speak in Baptist terms. Potluck. Actually, in the Greek, it is potluck. Potluckia. That's... I didn't want to break out the technical term, but you forced me to. That is what happened when they come together. Guys, when they come together, it wasn't just to hear. It wasn't just to take in this valuable information about their Lord. It wasn't just something that they held as valuable that was going to illuminate their life and help them make proper decisions that honored God. It wasn't just something that was going to be a roadmap for their life in hearing the Word, but they shared their lives together in our small groups one of the great things about it one of the great things about any biblically based small group is this you have an opportunity in that group you have an opportunity in that group to get involved with other people's lives this morning this is not really a small group in that sense This is, by all accounts, a lecture. This is me speaking to you. This is me being active in speaking and you being passive in listening. However, a small group is designed to be different. And we get that impression from Acts chapter 2 that what they were doing was not just hearing and taking it in, but they were getting involved in people's lives. They were learning together. They were growing together. In your small groups, I can't can't tell you how many times I have heard people say in 14 years that, man, I have learned so much from being involved in this group. They learn, we learn from other people's lives. That doesn't mean you always like what they have to say. That doesn't mean that you always believe what someone else in your group does. That may not mean that you have everything in common with that person that sits across from the table. But the one thing you do have in common is a value of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a place for you not just to learn passively from the teacher or from others, but you can be an active part in the discussion. You can share what's on your heart. You can share your life experiences. You can share your victories and defeat. And it provides a great environment, 
and an atmosphere for learning. You're not just learning from hearing someone. You're learning from seeing and being with other people. First, they gave their ears and their heart. They continued steadfastly in the doctrine. Nothing was going was to deter them from this. They shared their lives. Fellowship. I must also clarify the breaking of bread uh, does also give a reference to the Lord's Supper. It wasn't just them eating um, and having meals together or potluckia, uh, but it does also uh, reference the Lord's Supper, that they were remembering His death until He came. I want you to see verse 45 for a moment. It says, They sold their possessions and goods and divided them all among all as anyone had need. This is not, as some say, a biblical uh, reason for socialism politically. What this is is a basic teaching of charity spiritually. What happened in this, in this group was they did not just give their ears and their hearts. They did not just share their life. But guys, here's the great thing. They gave their possessions. I want you to think about what a beautiful picture we have right here. I want you to just think in your mind for a moment that these groups, maybe, maybe 15 to 20 people, maybe 12 families at the most getting together, and you know, as they're, as they're learning the apostles' doctrine and as they're growing in knowledge and, and as they're eating together, we see the depth of their experience. The depth of their experience. Not everything that was discussed in that small group necessarily had to do with theology. You see, I get the impression from Acts chapter 2 here that as they're around those tables or wherever it was they were eating, I would imagine that some in the group had found out that, that, that John over here had a need. Maybe he was short on food and times may have been tough for him. May not have come up in a theological discussion, but somewhere because they were sharing their lives together. Because they had a common bond together. That group decided that if there is a known need in this group, we are going to strive to meet that. Even if it costs me getting rid, selling something of mine in order to meet that need. One of the great things about small groups, guys, is not just the atmosphere you have to be able to learn and to grow. Not just the experience of being able to learn from other people's life experiences and opinions. But you have the opportunity to build a relationship with other people in that group who genuinely care about you. You see, that's one of the things that large groups don't do well. Because there's not discourse. There's not discussion. I'm active in speaking. You're passive in listening. And I don't always get to know of the needs. But when you meet together with your group and you're doing life, you're sharing life with them, you're learning the Word, you're listening to their account of their life, and someone says, man, this is going on in my life, you can know. You can know 
that you have a family on the other side of the table that is going to care, and they may not have the possessions to give to you, but you can know that that person genuinely cares about your need, and they're going to do whatever they have in their power to meet that need. Guys, I don't know a class. I do not know a class in this church that if there was a legitimate known need among their people that they would not and have not emptied their pockets, emptied their hearts, and bent their knees to see that those needs were met. That's an awesome thing. That's a value-based decision. Who does not want? Who in the world would not want to be in an environment where they can hear the Word? Be in an environment where they can learn with other people and build meaningful, lasting, good relationships with other people and to know that that person sitting across the table from me has a legitimate, vested interest in my welfare and cares about me. Guys, there are people all, all day. You run across them. I run across them. They feel like nobody cares. And don't get me wrong, I know I'm painting a very rosy picture of small groups. And I know that I run the risk of when I'm painting this very rosy picture of small groups, there are some of you that could share horror stories. Another reason why you are just to be passive. However, I do know this. There are always, always going to be difficulties. There are always going to be stumbling blocks for that which is good. I believe whatever God designed, and this is going to be a theme you're going to hear in the next few weeks, whatever God designs, our enemy seeks to distort. Whatever God designs, it only makes sense, doesn't it? Guys, really, doesn't it only make sense if we apply logic to this? If God ultimately, if small groups are good and beneficial, for our Christian growth and development. Doesn't it just make sense if we have an enemy who is bent on distorting and destroying what God has designed? Doesn't it also seem logical that there would be problems and issues with small groups? Doesn't it just seem logical that because we are fallen, we live in a fallen world, we still battle with sin nature in our life, and we have an enemy who is bent on destroying the good things of God, doesn't it seem logical that we're going to run across some hiccups on occasion? You see, life is the same way. I told you that these people shared life together. They did life together. They met, they heard, they invested their lives, they, they cared about other people, they ministered, in the name of other people, and I'll tell you that, that a strong small group still undergoes attack. There, there is no perfect small group. Someday there will be a perfect large group, but that is when we're all in glory, beholding the face of the One who created us. They gave their ears and heart, they shared their lives, and they helped others with their possessions. So, value-based decision. It was an individual commitment. And please look at the third and final thing this morning. I love this one. It had a God-honoring result. Yes, I was apparently in love with hyphens this morning. It had a God-honoring.
honoring result. Look at verse 47 with me for a moment. Or verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate bread. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily, daily, those who were being saved. Think about these four things, three things this morning. Verse 42, do you remember me making a lot out of verse 42? Or excuse me, verse 43, then fear came upon every soul. When they'd come together, were involved in the apostles' doctrine, were living their lives together, fellowshipping, getting invested in meeting the needs of other people. One of the results of that was that the people were in a continual sense of all of God. A continual sense of all of God. Now that was a byproduct of them meeting together. That there's no record in, in this situation of any specific miracle that was going on. But because they were all together, because they were all surrounded by other people who love God, because they were surrounded and being reaffirmed by the teaching of the apostles, because they were actively involved in meeting needs, they were legitimately seeing God work. And this group was continually, perpetually in awe of God. They were reverencing God as a result of what they saw happen in their group that's a god-honoring thing i believe god always wants us to walk in awe of him and it's true we don't always do it it's true that there may be certain times on a worship service that we are just standing in awe it may not have anything to do about a certain note that jason played it may not have anything to do necessarily with a certain word on the screen but there are those moments when you're worshiping and you're just in awe of who God is. And I love those moments. But you know what? Those moments don't always last. And this was an environment where these people were perpetually, perpetually in awe of God. God was moving and doing things. Notice this it, in verse 47. Praising God. Praising God. Two words. It should only be right that if all of these things are happening that praise or worship of God uh, should be a natural byproduct of this. And that's the great thing is that that's going to happen when we put ourselves in an environment to hear His Word, to be reaffirmed of the teachings or to learn something new. Ultimately, the promises that we find in the Scriptures are going to encourage us and are going to cause us to say, God, thank You so much for loving me. God, thank You so much for never abandoning me. Thank You, God, so much You have called me into the family. The more acquainted we are with the Word, I believe, helps feed our life of praise and worship to Him. And these people are seeing, are they meeting other people's needs? Guys, have you ever been in a situation where you had a need and someone else met it? And you're just amazed, you're just in awe, you're so incredibly thankful to the God who moved in that person's heart, who provided those resources, and who gave them over to you. This group, these groups, were of perpetual awe of God. These groups were in perpetual praise 
continuing to lift high and to magnify His name. Notice this third one. Not only praising God, but having favor with all the people. Some could say that that in itself is a miracle. When Luke is describing all the people, it appears as though he's not describing all of the people in the group. And it doesn't appear that he's using the word all the people to describe all of the people that have come to know Christ in this larger group, this larger body. Because he's already spoken about their influence individually. He's already spoken about the dynamics of the group. When, Peter, when Luke is speaking about having favor with all the people, it reminds me that these people didn't lock themselves away in their little rooms. These people didn't hear Peter say, be saved from this crooked generation, so they immediately formed monasteries and went inside and shut the door and ate their food in, the close, in a closed environment. This tells me that if all the people were not the people in the small group, were not the people in the overall larger group of Christians, but if all the people, as I believe it does, represents all the people in Jerusalem, then what it tells me is the product of man, the product of the woman, the character of of those people that were walking out were fine, upstanding Christian people. That what it was producing in the daily arena of life, what that group was producing at the marketplace, what that, that group was producing down on the street corner, what that group was producing at the temple gates was a group of people who had favor with everybody else. That people would look at him, and you know what? They may not believe what they believe, but they could look at that person and not find fault and look at them and say, that is a person of upstanding character. That is a person who is good. It was producing visibly good people. You know what one of the best, event, what one of the best church growth tools is in all of the world? Some say that cold calling and going to house to house and knocking on the door is the best way to grow a church. Some will tell you that you have to have mailings and emails and phone trees and all of those other things to grow a church. I believe, I believe that the greatest tool to grow a church is to be an organization that is producing God-honoring people. I believe that when you and I leave our small groups, church or at home, I believe that we ought to be able to walk out into the public forum changed. I believe that what happens inside the group ought to be evident outside the group. And when those people came together, as mysterious as it seems, just a few words, a few verses that are given to the structure of this group, what happened was they came in for a God 
honoring, valuable purpose. And they invested by giving their ears and their hearts. They invested by coming together and sharing life. They saw value in walking and living in the presence of other Christians. They also gave their possessions. And what happened in that group, as all of those things were taking hold and were affecting those lives, they were walking out different people. Small groups are a great supplement. Doing life, being a discipled with another group of people is a great way to supplement your Christian growth. Guys, here's the fourth and final thing that this small group produced. And it's found in verse 47. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. This again, the last part of verse 47, helps us to be able to understand the other verse about how they had favor among all people. See, if he was speaking simply about all people in the group, then we would, and if we found them not leaving that group, not, not leaving that home, not leaving that structure or that environment because it's a crooked world, if, they, if it wasn't all people, then they wouldn't be able to come in contact with lost folks. And the great thing about the people that were leaving is they weren't just fine, upstanding Christian men and women who believed in the purpose of God, who believed in the value of His Word, who believed in the importance of meeting other people's needs in the name of Christ. But those people were winning other souls to Christ. They were winning souls to Christ. Nothing, nothing, I believe, honors God more than when we are not just saved ourselves, but are growing as a Christian and seeking to win others to Christ and disciple them. Guys, this, what we see, what we see right here, is the literal fleshing out of the Great Commission. What we see right here in these verses is the fleshing out of the last teachings that Jesus gave His disciples when He told them to teach them all things whatsoever I have commanded you and, and, and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We see that very thing, same thing happening. They were lost people who got saved, who then became disciples, who then were discipling others. And we see the fleshing out of what Jesus had asked, had commanded at the Great Commission, some of his last words to his disciples to make disciples. When I look at this, uh, let me just tell you, this small group, these small groups, they had problems. They did. In fact, one of the problems is that two of the people in the group died. Remember how they died? 
They were all giving some of their portion and there were some who were lying to the Holy Spirit in the group. And you know what happened? When they were lying to the Holy Spirit about what they were giving, those two people died in Acts chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira, those two people died. There were problems in the church, but you know what? The good that came from these groups far exceeded the bad that came from it. And I believe that if you have never been a part, never sat across from the table who's someone who had a legitimate interest in your life, someone who was capable of teaching and sharing and expounding to you the truth of God's Word, other people like yourself who are doing life, who are messing up, who are accomplishing victories in Christ's name, whatever, whatever the spectrum is, if you have never been a part of that, I believe you could also say, If you have been a part of that, you could say the good far outweighs the bad. You see, why, why, why would I devote three weeks talking about the importance of coming together as Christians? Why would I talk for three weeks about the importance of Christian community and small group fellowship? And it's this. Because more than anything else, at my heart, is a desire to lead a church that is strong. That's it. I want to lead a church that is strong. Strong churches are active. Strong churches grow. Strong churches reproduce themselves. I want more than anything to be a part, to lead, to play my part in the role of leading a strong church. And I am absolutely convinced that the strength of a church, the strength of a church, lies not in the attendance on Sunday morning, but lies in the cohesiveness and the effectiveness of the small groups that make it up i want you to be able to grow i want you to be able to be strengthened i want you to be able to build strong relationships i want you to be a part of god's plan and i believe that one of the best ways that that is carried out is when we join with other believers yes there are tons of excuses tons of bad experiences i'm sure that you've had But what I want to share with you is to to not allow the enemy to come in and to destroy what you know to be through the Scriptures and even through maybe your own experience, what you know to be a valuable part, a valuable supplement to your Christian life. And I believe it comes down to this. I believe it comes down to this. What decisions in my life, what actions in my life reflect that Jesus Christ is the most valuable personality in my life. Are you telling me, Pastor, that if I don't go to Sunday school, then I don't value Jesus? I'm telling you that if you love Jesus, you cannot not love the things of Jesus. And if you really believe that growing and that, and that you come to that place where you say, I can't do this myself, I, I need help. I was created to connect. I'm called to connect. And now we're left with the decision to connect. I believe it's a value-based decision. Do you see Christian growth? How about beyond, beyond Sunday school? Set it aside for a minute. 
Do you see the Word as valuable in your life? And I'm sure that if I took a poll this morning, every one of us would say, but yeah, the Bible's valuable. And then we ask ourselves if it is so valuable. If it is so valuable, how much time do I give to it? What about worship? Not singing necessarily, but worship. Meditation on God and His Word. Is that valuable? Absolutely. If that's valuable, then how much attention do I give that? What priority and precedent does it take in my life? If I believe that these things are truly valuable, then my life should reflect it. This message is not just about small groups. It's not just about lecterns and coffee cups. It's not just about handshakes and curriculum. This morning it's about us answering the question, what is the most valuable thing in my life? And if it is not Jesus, it should be. And what should we re-maneuver? What should we re-prioritize in our life? What do we have to say? This has to take second or third or fourth chair in my life so that Jesus has the place of the most prominent, preeminent value in all of my life. What needs to be rearranged? Because I believe we're never going to be satisfied. I believe this. We're never going to be eternally satisfied until Jesus has that place right in the center of our puzzle. Has that place right at the top the pinnacle of our life and the rest of our life reflects that. This morning, if you have questions about rearranging your life, or maybe you don't have questions, maybe you know what needs to come down a notch or two so that Jesus can have that place. And you need to make that decision today. Maybe you've never come to Christ as your Savior. Oh, it's a great love. Oh, it is, it is still a message that not just 2,000 years ago, but today is still cutting to the heart of people. It did not just happen in Jerusalem. Praise God, it happens in Joplin. It didn't just happen across the sea. It's still happening here and across the street. The Gospel is still effective and powerful. And if you've never trusted Christ today, there is no shame in coming to say, Pastor, I want to be saved right now. I want to know Jesus as my Savior. Pastor, you may say, I want to rededicate my life today. Pastor, I need to pray about some things in my life. Whatever that decision is. Maybe you say this morning, Pastor, I I really believe that this is the place that God wants me to be a part of. This is the place that I believe God wants to add me to, to be a part of the work here. Whatever that is. Church membership, baptism, salvation, rededication. I pray that all of our decisions, whether here or there, would reflect that He is the most valuable personality and person in our life. Father, I thank You that we look not just at what happened in that church, but why it happened. And it happened because You were the most important thing in their life. And Lord, I believe today that You desire to have that same place with us. And Lord, that's not a decision that we get a certificate for. It's not a decision that we vote on. God, it's a decision we make every morning before our feet hit the floor. It's a decision we make, Lord, throughout the day to make You number one and to make sure that our life lines up so. Help us this morning. Help us this morning do the rearranging necessary in order to reflect 
that you are number one to us. In Jesus' name, amen.